Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Carl Hoffman is a best-selling writer and anthropologist who's traveled on assignment to 80 countries, including some of the most dangerous and remote corners of the world. But until now, he's never written extensively about the United States. In his latest book, Liar's Circus, he tracks Donald Trump's most faithful supporters as he attends the president's rallies across 5,000 miles of the American heartland from the months of the impeachment proceedings to the beginnings of the coronavirus pandemic. His book is published by HarperCollins, and I'm very pleased that it brings Carl Hoffman to our show now. Welcome. Thank you so much. Now, your subtitle is A Strange and Terrifying Journey into the Upside-Down World of Trump's MAGA Rallies. Uh, more terrifying than uh, some of your other experiences. Uh, your, your previous books blend travel, history, and anthropology in reports about cannibals in New, New Guinea, Mumbai's dangerous railways, and the indigenous tribes of Borneo. Well, yes and no. I mean, the thing was, when I started this book, the reality is I didn't know any Trumpians. I didn't know any people who had voted for Trump. I mean, 63 million Americans had, and I didn't know any of them. I had a few random uh, Facebook social media friends, but um, no one in my daily life, and in, in, I live in Washington, D.C., and in, you know, going to restaurants, bars, the bus, the uh, the metro, I mean, the gym, I didn't knowingly cross paths with with any. And, you know, I'd been all over the world and lived in, you know, the swamps of New Guinea and trekked across Borneo. And, and it, it just struck me that it was so odd that this thing was happening in my own country and, you know, sort of the heart of darkness. And I had <laughs> failed to penetrate it. And I thought that it was uh, it might be not just interesting, but important uh, to do so. And, and you're right. If I'm quoting, if Trumpism was a place, then it was a place I could travel to just as surely as a village in the swamps of New Guinea or the huts of nomads in the rainforests of Borneo. So um, is this a process of understanding a culture much different, uh, whether it's in Borneo, New Guinea or Minnesota, Texas, Mississippi? No, I don't think so. It's all the same. You know, I have a, a sort of an approach, and that is to go to places and try to go as deep as I can and spend as much time as I can. And when I go to, I lived a month in a very remote village in the swamps of New Guinea for a, my book on the disappearance of Michael Rockefeller. And you know, I, I went, when you go into a place like that, I mean, uh, uh, this village had no electricity, no plumbing, uh, nothing. I was alone, and I had no translator or anything. And, you know, I just sort of suspend all of my own needs, and I don't go in and say, you know, I want a hot dog, and where's my um, freshly ground <laughs> coffee and my and my foam milk? You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, you just go in, and, you, and I don't say, you know, this bed is no good, or where's the bed? In that case, there was no bed. You know, I go to sleep when they go to sleep, and I wake up when they go when they wake up, and I eat what they eat, and and I listen and I nod, and it's the same here. You know, when I went into, um, you know, for my very first rally onward, you know, the minute I, I'm a little bit old fashioned, I always take just take notes with a pen and pad, and the minute I 
brought that notebook out, the game was up. You know, people said, what are you doing? Are you a journalist? I said, well, I'm a writer and I'm here to write about. And they said, what are you writing about? I'm, I said, well, I'm writing about Trump's rallies. Why? I said, well, because he's had more rallies than any president in history. And the rallies are seem to be, a, you know, this incredibly potent and important part of his presidency. And I want to I want to understand that. And most of the time they were like, yeah, OK. And then if they asked me the follow up question, you know, well, where do you stand? I said, you know, I'm uh, I'm, I'm I'm sort of agnostic for the purposes of this. I'm being agnostic. I'm here to listen. And and that's pretty much what I did. You know, I didn't go in. I didn't sit there in line at a, at a MAGA rally and say, you all are idiots. Um, and, you know, the wall should never be built. I, I, I didn't say that. You know, I I didn't agree. I didn't wear MAGA regalia. I didn't pretend otherwise, but I, I was there to listen. But the thing is that over time, you know, what I did in this book is I ended up spending a lot of, you know, hundreds of hours, mostly with the same people, this group of super you know, super hardcore Trump fans who wanted to be, you know, who were the front of the line. I mean, you know, you 22,000 people at a at a rally and, and there's a great badge of honor to be the first in line, to be the first through the doors, to be at the at the rail. And so I um, those are the people that I hung out with. And over time, you know, I spent so much time. I mean, I spent 54 hours or something like that in the line at, uh, in Tupelo, Mississippi, my third rally. And. Wait, wait, wait. So you had to line up 52 hours before the rally began to get in the in one of the front rows? Well, the way a Trump rally works is there's this, um, you know, you go on a, on the website to, to put your name in for a ticket, but there's an unlimited number of tickets and people get to, you know, in an ideal scenario from the Trump campaign's point of view, there would be, you know, 22,000 seats in, a, in an arena and, you know, 200,000 tickets would be given away. They're free. And, you know, all those people would come to the arena, you know, hours, if not days beforehand and create this spectacle, this mob, this crowd, you know, crowd, crowd begets a crowd. I mean, if you see a crowd and in Washington Park, you know, people go, maybe if you've lived in New York forever, you don't anymore, but you know, you run to the crowd. You always run to a crowd, a crowd begets a crowd. And so this sort of, this, this great yearning goes on at a rally. So yes. And, and many people travel, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of miles, like a deadhead or a, you know, a fish concert or something. I mean, you know, tailgating and they'll get in a line. Um, and it took me two rallies before I really grasped that. But my first two rallies, I got there very early, like at dawn, but that was too late mm-hmm. of the rally late. day. So my third, it was too late. So my third rally, I got there about 54, 52 hours before the rally. And I found, I was number six. I was the sixth in line. And so, you know, I spent, you sit there in your, in your camp, your cheap folding camp chair, um, you know, and people trade off to save your place. You go to your car and warm up, or you, some people have a hotel room. You go to your hotel room for a couple hours. Mostly you sit there with people and jaw about, 
you know, the crazy world of American politics and in, in the Trumpian fantasy world. And, you know, people do that from rally to rally to rally. You know, I was there, it, it, the, the, the five people before me at, in, in Tupelo, you know, Rick Snowden had been, to, been now to like 68 or 70 rallies and Rick Frazier's been to, you know, 23 and on and on. I mean, these people are, are fanatics. No, and uh, they weren't concerned that you were what they a member of what they call the lamestream media. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, everything honestly, everything about a Trump rally and about Trump world is like upside down. I mean, it's all crazy and cockeyed. So, in that world, of course, there is a a a, a, tr- a press corral. And, you know, Trump in his speeches talks about the media and people go, boo, boo, you know, and looked at down you. And, but, of course, in reality, the minute a, a journalist comes near them, they, they're hungry to talk. You know, they go running to the cameras just like any good Kardashian does. And, you know, people's ego always gets the best of them and they want to be. So in my case, you know, I was just right there. They wanted to talk and and they were very kind to me for the most part. And, you know, they got used to my presence. I mean, that's the thing. I, I was there and I kept showing up and we became friends. I went to their hotel rooms. I went out for dinner with them. I, I you know, did everything with them for, for months on end. Has any other reporter or anthropologist sought to understand the rallies as a sociological phenomenon? I don't think so. Um, You know, a lot of people, obviously, there have been a lot of pieces about his rallies. And some people, you know, you're most of the Times and Post reporters who are covering the White House or covering the campaign, you know, go to rallies. And they often go to multiple rallies. Um, But, you know, I think most and they get booed. I mean, it's like, a, you know, it's all a setup, that whole booing thing. It's just like the. The, it, it's just like sort of the 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 the, the fool. It's like a shit. You know, they're like they're set up as sort of Shakespearean fools, you know, to be laughed at on purpose. That they're a foil. And but you know, most of those people don't leave the corral. They come in, you know, just an hour or two before, a couple hours before the rally, and they um, you know file their story and they leave and they and they spend most of the time in the corral. You know, I don't know how many people have done, or I don't think anyone's done what I did, which was just to spend you know, almost 200 hours in parking lots with, the, with these craziest fans. He was holding pretty much one a week. Did you assume that the pandemic would end the rallies as we knew them? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I mean, I sort of was finishing up my research. Uh, you know, I wanted to do the book and get it out before the election, you know, as the impeachment was over and the very first um, embers of the coronavirus were hitting. I mean, now, you know, we see, saw this week, Edward's book that, you know, as early as, um, you know, February 7th, I think it was, that Trump was saying, the uh, you know, admitting that it was this deadly flu, dead, it was you know, much more deadly than the flu, and it was airborne. And yet I was at a rally February 11th, you know, where we were packed in an arena. And um, 
So, you know, the thing is that he was forced to um, to stop his rallies for a long time. And I, in that and in happened over a few weeks, you really tend to see the importance, the power of the rallies to him. Uh, you know, I think he was just, when he had to suspend the, I mean, the rallies are everything, really, for Trump, in my opinion, and that he has to have them in order to stay inflated, as do his fans, and that there's this symbiotic relationship. I mean, it's a classic sort of crowds and or um, arrangement, and without them, he just, he's like a balloon with a hole, I mean, in it, and he just deflates, and we saw that, you know, as the pandemic raged, and he, he couldn't have his rallies, and people said, well, you know, his White House briefings were instead of the rallies, but they weren't. They didn't work that way. They were not full of tens of thousands of screaming fans. They were full of cynical journalists. And suddenly, you know, at the, the last night of the Republican convention, he had that extravaganza on the lawn and all those people gathered together. And he kind of grew and he's been inflating again. And now he's on the rally trail again. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you would know, have assumed the, the, after the embarrassment of Tulsa that that would have ended it. But as you say, he's back on the rally trail. Uh, yesterday, uh, 5,000 people attended his rally in, in Freeland, Michigan. And uh, judging from what I've seen on television, there was only minimal social distancing and only a few people wore masks. Yeah, I mean, the, most of those people... Well, I haven't been to one of these new outdoor rallies, so I guess I, I need to be careful what I say. But my guess is most of them, you know, just sort of don't believe in COVID and they don't believe in the pandemic and they believe what Trump and uh, people have been telling them for months, which is that it's, it's uh, you know, it's all a plot to, by deep state democratic plot to bring down Trump. You know, that was the thing that I think, I mean, there's so many things that, 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 that I found like amazing and, and just mind boggling about his rallies. But, you know, the biggest thing, I th- one of the biggest things is that, you know, if you going into it, I assume that things like QAnon, you know, all these conspiracy theories were fringe that even among Trump supporters, you know, only a few, you know, a handful of wackos would believe this sort of thing, you know, pizza cake. And I found it to be completely the opposite of that, that at a rally of every, you know, 90 percent, 95, 98 percent of the people at a rally, you know, believe in the wildest, the craziest conspiracy theories. I mean, they believe everything from, you know, the standard QAnon stuff which is, you know, that the wall is being constructed to uh, uh, stop this, uh, you know, human trafficking, meaning, you know, uh, children being kind of bled out and for for the deep state Democrats like Hillary Clinton and John Podesta to drink their blood. I mean, you know, there's a video, the Frazzle Drift video that you can watch and it's, you can hear the babies crying in the tunnels. <laughs> Um, and, and you know, that Michelle, or the, but to, to other crazy things. I mean, one night I spent a whole evening, you know, listening to how Michelle Obama was a man and she has a penis. 
And you can see it, you know, if you watch this YouTube video. And I did it right there. I was like, oh, well, let's, I'm going to watch the video. And I'm watching on my phone. And um, I, I say to them, I don't see it. They're like, it's right here. You can see it flapping. I'm like, I don't see <laughs> it. And then, you know, the guy goes, come on, Carl. You probably think, you know, Oswald acted alone. <laughs> and, you know, I'm talking to this woman in Texas in in line for the taco truck. And she seems like a very normal, smart woman. And she's about my age. And she's, you know, travel all over the world. I mean, this isn't some, you know, uh, uh, a person who's never gone outside of their hollow. And she's, you know, traveled to India and the Caribbean. And she said she used to be an Obama supporter. And I said to her, I said, you know, the thing that really boggles my mind is that just how many conspiracy theories theories there are here. And, and, and I don't understand. And she said, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, I don't have 99 friends who committed suicide. Do you? <laughs> and I was like, what? And then I realized she was talking about Hilton, the Clintons and, you know, supposedly, you know, Vince Foster, who committed suicide and. You know, then he, she told me about this thing about John Kennedy Jr., about this plane crash, that really Hillary Clinton did it to prevent him from challenging her. I mean, that stuff goes on and on and on and on, and everyone believes it in some way. And it's incredibly – like I thought that I would go – I would be hanging out with, with people having these substantive policy discussions, you know. <laughs> And um, you couldn't do that. I mean, I couldn't really talk policy with them because they were in such a, 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 a you know, we weren't standing on the same ground at all. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're streaming at WBAI.org. And my guest is Carl Hoffman, whose latest book is Liar's Circus, A Strange and Terrifying Journey into the upside down world of Trump's MAGA rallies. Now, I, I saw <clears throat> this isn't in your book, but I saw a news piece in which a reporter showed an elderly Trump supporter the, the video of Trump saying that he could shoot somebody in the middle of Fifth Avenue and, and not lose any votes. And even after she saw it, she said that was fake news. So, yeah, I mean, so what does it take? People, people constantly ask, how can anyone continue to support him in light of all of the scandals that we have have uh, been learning about over the years? Yes, but those scandals aren't true. I mean, you know, Trump is a is like a is like a champion chess player, three dimensional chess player. I literally had people tell me this. And that he, you know, he is a master and he's manipulating everything here. He's always got two aces up, another ace up his sleeve. He's also, of course, he's heaven sent, um, which I heard many times. And um, he, you know, all of these things from, you know, and he, he says these things when he's speaking at the rallies. You know, the Ukraine call was perfect. Um, he, you know, you're literally, that's why the book is called Upside Down World, because everything that Trump says is upside down. You know, you're literally sitting there and he says, you know, he's talking about union people and support of union, you know, and, and they're union guys who are, you know, there's a moment of silence and a beefy guy will yell, I love you. 
Mm. And, you know, the Republican Party has been destroying, you know, labor unions for years, for decades with right to work laws. And, you know, he, he talks about the that will never um, eliminate your, you, you know, pre you, you know, your right to your, your insurance coverage of pre-existing conditions, you know, even as they're literally, I mean, literally suing to uh, to eliminate the Affordable Care Act, the, the the hallmark of which is you know protecting people with pre-existing conditions, and that goes on and on and on. And you know you're sitting there, and and you know the most popular song at the rally, the thing that gets people really rocking, you know, and music is played at this crushing decibel level, you know, is the Village People's YMCA, and people are. Right. You know, 20,000 people are dancing. And, you know, this is in Mississippi when there's thousands of evangelical Christians who believe that, you know, being gay is a sin. And, you know, they're they're swaying to these guys in, you know, faux uniforms saying, you know, come on, young man, come on down to the Y. I mean, it's mind boggling, you know, and then Mike Pence comes out, you know, and, you know, there's no one worse. There's no more, you know, I mean, than Mike Pence in that way. So it's like this whole, so you're back to your, your, you know, the, the, the famous quote about he could shoot somebody. It's true. People don't, people don't believe it and they don't read newspapers. They don't watch news. A lot of them don't even watch Fox news anymore. Um, you know, it's very, very common to have someone tell you that they, you know, they're an independent researcher and they get their news you know, almost exclusively from Twitter and from Facebook. Uh, so they, they, they no, no damage was done to him from the revelations about Stormy Daniels, Russian interference in our elections, the Trump University scandal, uh, the fact that he raided his own charities. We can go on and on and on. And now we have these latest uh, uh, alleged statements about suckers and losers in the military and and uh, as you point out recorded statements to bob woodward about the severity of the pandemic it, it doesn't matter well they they just ignore no. all of that the only thing that has mattered really is I mean, first of all there's sort of two things we're talking about here one is his base like hardcore base that goes to rally no none of it matters at all, zero, no impact whatsoever. I mean, he will literally lead them right off, right over the cliff. And, you know, the other thing is that the thing that really, the only thing that really cut into him, I think, is the pandemic, is COVID. And that was because, you know, you could see for the very first time the, through the smoke and mirrors, you know, you could see this, this, you know, dramatic kind of white and black difference between what Trump was saying. It's all great. It's all under control. You know, we've, it, 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 it's, it, it's not something to worry about. It's no worse than the flu. And, you know, you had 20,000 people in New York City dying. So, you know, that and if you were an old, older person, I mean, if you're a senior, you know, you worry about that. You worry about COVID. You know, I'm not as young as I used to be, and I am more careful than, you know, I would be if I was in my 20s. And, you know, I think that had a huge impact. You know, when he had the Tulsa rally and, you know, 6,200 people showed up, they didn't 
he didn't fail to fill the, the arena because he couldn't gather supporters. I mean, that would that was easy. It was that people were afraid of COVID. I mean, people were actually afraid, right. and that stands in contrast. And so that, you know, his supporters, his base, they would follow him off the cliff. But there is, you know, this middle area. I mean, this, this you know, I mean, so-called suburban moms and, you know, people who, who, are, who, are, who maybe, you know, went into that booth in uh, 2016 and closed the curtain and voted for him even though they didn't admit it and, you know, lots of people like that, that hopefully, you know, will, and a lot of seniors that won't see him. And then the second thing that, that finally, I think that really damaged him was, you know, uh, uh, racial justice protests and BLM things. And, you know, when he waded into the, the, you know, uh, uh, across Lafayette square in Washington, DC to St. John's church and hold up, you know, held up that Bible. I mean, you could see that you know, the, 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 the police and, you know, the park police, it wasn't really D.C. police, you know, violently uh, assaulted this crowd for no other reason than for Trump to walk in there and hold the Bible up in front of a church. I mean, it was all the rhetoric for the first time I think people could see and feel the rhetoric, the difference between his rhetoric and reality. And, you know, but, but now he's, he's on the rally circuit again, and he, he projects strength, and he admits that. And I get the sense from reading your book that he can be different things to different people. One of the things that uh, people uh, told Fox News uh, attendees of the rally yesterday in Freeland is that they support him because he tells it like it is. So, Whatever uh, it is that they want to believe, he is he's telling it like it is. Yeah, I mean, he's anything he wants to be. Right. Because he I mean, you know, because he's a liar and he'll you know, if I tell a lie, even a, a white lie, I can't come to your party because my grandmother's sick. I still feel, kind of, you know, a twinge of guilt. Mm. But when he that's what, it was one of the first things that struck me. Uh, my first rally in Minneapolis, he when he came out and he started talking, I realized that it was all a lie. Well, he it calls it Minneapolis. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and I and I and I couldn't believe how you know big and strong he looked, and how he was saying all these things that literally just weren't true, and nobody. And he didn't. He clearly didn't feel any guilt about it at all. And you, you know think, that's a powerful thing. Like you know, what do you say? Most people just aren't equipped to deal with that kind of level of deceit. Do you think he's encouraged to make some of those outrageous statements because he knows uh, they're going to cheer no matter what? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he loves it. He loves having those people. I mean, people screaming, I love you. You know, I was in, in uh, Tupelo one of the hours before the rally, and this guy who had been uh, a, a worker working on the building, the fencing, the corrals um, that, that are part of every rally, and he was starting to leave. He, he finished his task, and big, older, burly guy in a Carhartt coveralls, and he stopped and 
chatted with us and he said, and I never would have believed this if I hadn't seen it, you know, with my own eyes or heard it. He said, you know, I would walk behind Donald Trump and pick up his poop if he asked me to. Ooh. Well, you mentioned level of, of, um, of, of worship that people feel for him. Now, you mentioned that they, uh, they, they noticed that you were taking notes, so they understood you had to explain what you were doing. But how open were you about your own opinions? How did they respond? Or uh, you, you talk about one person uh, who you told that you don't believe in the wall. Uh, how did they respond to things like that? Well, that was on my like my last or my next to last rally. And I told a guy named Dave Thompson, who I'd been spending a lot of time with, who had was a, a super fan and who was going to all these rallies. And, you know, over time, like you can't hide you know, who you are from people. So it became evident that I was much more liberal than them. But like I said, we didn't have these policy discussions. But once in a while, it was just like burst from me. I mean, you couldn't help it. And it was some talk about the wall. And I said, you know, the wall, you really believe that? I don't, and he was, I was like, I don't believe in the wall. And they were, I said, I think it's a bad idea. And he turned to me with such amazement and wonder. Like it was, and I was, I was on the rail. I mean, I was like in the very front row. Trump hadn't come out yet. We were waiting for him. To, and this, all these sort of heads turned, and people just couldn't believe it. It was like I was, uh, you know, it's like I said that, that I didn't believe in God. <laughs> uh, we have to take a little break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. I hope you will, Carl, and I hope our audience will. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and we're streaming online at, w, at WBAI.org. Well, let me tell you, friend, it's time to make America great again. Make America great again. I said it once and I will say it again. Make America great again. Damn, it feels good to be American. Okay, well, and now we're back with my guest, Carl Hoffman. His latest book is Liar's Circus. A Strange and Terrifying Journey into the Upside-Down World of Trump's MAGA Rallies, published by, um, was it HarperCollins? Uh, HarperCollins, well, Custom House. So um, let's, uh, let's look a bit more at uh, the situation. You travel from Minnesota to Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and New Hampshire, um, uh, thousands of miles what percentage of the attendees go to as many as you did? And, and how far are they likely to travel? You know, out of 20,000, there's sort of historically, and, and there, there were two kind of types of rallies, a, a 10,000 seat arena in places like Tupelo or like a 22,000 seat one in big cities like Dallas and Minneapolis. <clears throat> and, of those people, you know, obviously I didn't talk to all of them, but many of them came from far. I mean, you know, easily hours and and many of them, you know, many hours. And then of those, you know, it's not it was not uncommon at all to um, talk to people who had been to numerous rallies. I mean, and almost 
somebody, if you met, if I met somebody and it was like their first rally, it was sort of amazing to me. You know, almost yeah. everyone had been to more than one, usually just a few, you know, one and if he'd been to Minneapolis a year before or something, they'd been, you know, the, it was only the super hardcore people who go thousands of miles and, you know, from and go to ten, dozens of rallies. The, the ones who you but mentioned uh, stand in line hours, uh, even days before the rally so that they can be in the front row. So they're all talking to each other. Uh, it's a social event as well, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, it's a ritual. You know, what is what are rituals all about? I mean, they sort of rituals reconstitute people and they're, you know, even a funeral or a bar mitzvah or so many. I mean, they're, they're you know, those things ultimately are social events. It's the same in in with a ceremony in Bali or in Papua or something. I mean, you know, there 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 are moments when people come together and spend time together, talking, catching up, visiting. I mean, my mom was from North Dakota, and the very small town in Kandu, North Dakota. And whenever I went back there with her. When I was a kid, it was it always felt so boring to me. We'd go from house to house to house, sit down with people and just talk to them. And she said, it's called visiting. It's visiting. <laughs> and I had that sense when I was at Trump rallies in the parking lot that there was visiting going on, that people were, you know, coming together um, and spending time together. And, you know, something that we haven't talked about yet is racism. Mm. And, you know, this crowd, you know, at the, at the heart of the whole thing is, you know, when you said, well, Trump promises them. He, I think the quote you said, the quote that you quoted was that he says, uh, you know, he speaks his mind. He, he's not afraid to say that. And, Excuse me. And what that means for a lot of people is, you know, whiteness. But you, you, you know, say that almost the, no the, one you spoke to admitted to being a racist, <laughs> but none of them wanted blacks living next door to them or to share any power with them. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first time I went, the very first Trump rally I went to was in Minnesota and I got there. I I went to scope it out. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I went, I found the burgeoning developing line, this animal that sort of has life of its own the night before the afternoon before the, 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 the day before the rally in the afternoon. And there were, you know, 20 or 30 people there already. And, you know, one of them in the very first row was this black guy and like super MAGA regalia, MAGA hat, you know, stars and striped baseball shirt. And I was really and I didn't really know what I was doing or what I was seeing. I wasn't prepared at that point to spend the night there. So I went home. I slept in my hotel. And the next morning I came at dawn. And I was sort of surprised when I first got there. You know, I, then I saw this uh, uh, black family. And I, and I was like, wow, you know, all these like people of color are here. And then I kind of woke up. I realized that, you know, we're talking ultimately 20,000 people, 22,000 people. And maybe there were a couple hundred black people. I mean, they were they exclusively, and that's in a place like Minneapolis, where there's you know it's a much more urban 
uh, place. I mean, in, in some place like Bossier City in Shreveport, uh, Louisiana, or Tupelo, I mean, that there's almost no blacks at all, black people at all. And, it, and, and, and you know, it's an overwhelmingly white crowd. And people always said to me, you know, two things that stood out. One, that, you know, we being here is so great because it's being with people who are like us, who are mm-hmm. who think like us. And, you know, you can sort of take that at face value. Oh, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, what does that mean? But then if you really think about it, I mean, when you're in this all-white world and then you think about this idea of making America great again, you know, and what does that mean? You know, what is it, you know, what to these people does, you know, making great, um, making America great again mean? What does it mean to be able to speak your mind, to be not correct? You know, over and over again, people say, well, we, you know, Trump doesn't, it says it's okay not to be politically correct, but all those things circle around to racism. And if you say, and yet the first thing they'll, they'll say to you is like, you know, the liberals, the, the libtards are always saying, you know, we're racist. I'm not a racist. And, you know, yet- and, they, and they've got their arm around the black guy who's got the MAGA hat. Sure. But there are only, you know, 100 of those people in, in a sea of 20,000. And then the Trump campaign corrals them and puts yeah. them in a Blacks for Trump T-shirts and, and, and puts them literally, you know, in, in these seats behind the president, which are the ones that the television cameras, when they're focusing on his speech, you know, those are the people you see. You know, it's tokenizing them. I mean, it's, it's all mind boggling. I was just going to ask you about that because I've always noticed that there's a sprinkling of African-Americans in the front rows. I I was wondering whether they'd been seated there on purpose. But the whole matter of being in the front row, you say, is really important for many of these people. Uh, You write about a a quote, 59-year-old self-employed house painter and dog breeder, a former Marine, big-boned and goateed, who walked with a rolling gait and traveled with a bottle of whiskey, a battery-operated bullhorn, several large flags and banners exalting Donald Trump. And he always tries to be the first person seated in the front row at any Trump rally. Uh, so this is also a matter of, uh, of uh, what, what word do I want to use there? But it, it, obviously, it's very important to him. Why do you think that is? You, you spoke to the, You spoke to him. Well, for a guy, that's Randall Tom, and you mm-hmm. know, Randall calls himself. There's sort of a no a a, a, a term front row Joe's for mm-hmm. some of the people who are part of core super fans and try to be in the front. Always try to be in the front row, and not every person who tries to be in the front row actually calls himself a front row Joe. There's a slight kind of socioeconomic. Um, divide there, but um, Randall Tom, for instance, he says he's been to more rallies than anyone else. Or, but really, he's in competition with Rick, with Rick Snowden, who always wears a suit compared to Randall Tom's, you know, super MAGA regalia. And Randall Tom, you know, I mean, see up there being it's social for him. It's his identity. He does, you know. But the guy has been. I don't understand why the Secret Service lets him in. I mean, he's had 72 criminal convictions. I mean, <laughs> um, 
And he, you know, was a former crack addict. I mean, you know, everyone serves their shot of redemption. But he, he's, he's crazy. He's like a two-year-old. He's always having uh, um, um, these fits, and he's yelling and screaming, the police are trying to kick us out. He kicks things, and, you know, he, he, he takes – you're not allowed to bring outside banners into uh, – any outside signs or banners into a Trump rally. Uh, you know, and he one time he brought a, ra- a, a this big banner. He went up to the upper sections and he unfurled it and then he let it fly. And of course, they kicked him out mm. for that. And one of my favorite stories in the in the book is actually concerns his dog. <laughs> and um, Randall Tom is a uh, I guess breeds Alaskan Malamutes, and he had this dog, uh, and he named it Donald Trump. Uh-huh. And poor Donald Trump, the dog, was gunned down one day by by Randall Tom's neighbor, who gunned the dog down just because the dog was named Donald Trump, and he hated Donald Trump. And the dog was left bleeding in the snow while Randall Tom was off doing his patriotic duty. Um, protesting Amy Klobuchar. This I'm quoting from a GoFund site that was set up for Randall Tom for his distress, asking for $500 to help aid in his burial of Donald Trump, the dog, (laughs) and went ricocheting and rocketing around the Internet the way these things do. And next thing you know, you know, eight, Ten times that amount of money had come in for Donald Trump, the dog, and um, the, the the sheriff's department of wherever he, the little town in Minnesota where he lived and where the dog had been gunned down, was forced to weigh in and to say that, in fact, Donald Trump, the dog, that Randall Tom had had, you know, dozens of violations uh, uh, uh written out because he'd been leaving his dog out and the dog had attacked neighbors and had attacked people's chickens and, and, and cows and goats and killed wildlife and the dog's never on a leash and that the, do- the neighbor had called the sheriff and called Randall Tom numerous times to report the dog was on his property and had shot Ra- Donald Trump, the dog, or just cause. <laughs> How did Randall Tom but, respond know, when he lost out? He lost his first his front row seat to a young cancer survivor who had turned to both the Bible and and Donald Trump as I guess his personal savior. Well, you know, he was always he, he, he's just kind of a big, big, and you know, thuggy like in my opinion, guy. And he, um, you know, he, he, we, people would go out and and camp out and, and, you know, be first in line or set their tent up. And then, you know, several times he would just come and, you know, set his chair and set his tent in front of other people. And, um, uh, you know, just take that space and not care about anyone. It's interesting. He, um, Actually, you know, uh, the guy who uh, murdered those two people with his AR-15 in Kenosha a few weeks ago 
17-year-old kid was at this, it was in the front row of the Des Moines rally, um, and he, uh, I saw a text from uh, Tom that said, ah, I spent the night with that kid. He was the greatest kid. Um, mm. You know, it's so sad what happened to him. My guest on Let It Open at Large today is Carl Hoffman. His book, his latest book, is Liar's Circus, uh, A Strange and Terrifying Journey into the Upside-Down World of Trump's MAGA Rallies. His first book that doesn't take place in some foreign country because he is a former contributing uh, editor to National Geographic Traveler and Wired. Uh, and uh, how many books so far? This is my fifth. Ah. My third time on your show, actually. Well, uh, you're back because I really enjoyed talking with you. Uh, but since we're talking about radio, uh, in the, the limited time we have left, uh, one of the things I want to address is uh, what you report about listening to radio as you were driving through the Midwest. You listened to a, a number of religious radio shows, and the, the preachers promoted things like martyrdom and advised their listeners to love Jesus more than themselves or their families. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole section in the book and we haven't really talked about it, but in which I talk. Oh, about we're talking about it now. And yeah. And 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 um, it, you know, it, it sort of begins. It first really started hitting me when I was driving for long stretches and hours and and, um, you know, in this sort of broadcast desert. But you could almost always pick up these radio stations, uh, um, religious radio stations. And what I heard was like incredible. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was like the most, you know, it was all, it was so extreme. It was all about, you know, the tri the tribute and, and not, this isn't one I'm talking about. There's numerous stations in different places talking about the tribulation and, you know, the, 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 the four the, the horsemen of the apocalypse and the mark of the beast, this, you know, intense kind of end days, millenarian strain of, fundamentalist religion and that you know it struck me as i went deeper into the rallies and into this world that you know so many people listened to this and so many people came out of this there was this tradition and you know it's not you know if, if that's what you're listening to and that's what you're believing you know it's not much of a leap to go into QAnon and conspiracy theories of all sorts of crazy things and I what did these what did these preachers advise parents of gay children to do? Well, you know, I mean, I couldn't believe it. There, there were these lines. I heard this like a couple times, like, you know, you, you know, what do you do if you had to, if your child was gay or like your son said he was gay or that, you know, the devil came or, or you know, you had to you know, renounce your son. The, the choice was that you had to either renounce your son or love God. And which would you, which would you do? And the answer was always the correct answer was that you had to love God. You know, loving God was much more important. You would cast your own child into the, the, the flames of, of, um, of Hades. If you, um, you know, we're a good Christian. And that, you know, there was that scene, you mentioned it, the martyrs, you know, this, this, this preacher said, you know, I read, or I heard a story about these, you know, cops 
in Coptic Christians in Egypt walking through the streets of Cairo saying, take me, take me. And, and he said, isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't that be so wonderful to, to love Jesus so much that you offer your... And I, you know, I've written, I've actually traveled twice to Afghanistan and and, you know, it, it just hit me into, I mean, that's not that much, you know, how's that different from, you know, ISIS people talking about, um, you know, suicide bombers and the glory of death? Now, we have just about a minute left, but I also want to mention that you met other people, not just at the rallies, for example, a bartender who was sure that the U.N. maintains military forces on the U.S.-Mexican border. And he wouldn't believe you when you said that wasn't true. Yeah, I said, wait, that's not true. In the, the typical fashion, he just kind of gave me that knowing look and nodding his head with a little wry smile like, you know, I was the innocent getting no. wool pulled over my eyes. <laughs> now, critics often compare the rallies to Hitler's and Mussolini's rallies. Do you see any connection? Yeah, I talk about Hitler quite a bit in the yeah. book. And I, you know, on the one hand, people sort of said, well, that's like Bastille, it's too easy. But I think there's a real, um, there are real parallels in the way that, you know, I mean, there's a big difference between Trump and Hitler, obviously. Obviously. In, but, but, but there's this, this sense of this figure who is, pushing toward authoritarianism and autocracy, and he can't help it. And he's being abetted by many people who either don't really understand it or think that they can control him until, but they can't, and it's too late. We have to leave it there, unfortunately. But thank you so much for being on our show. Carl Hoffman, um, his latest book from Custom House, which is actually a division of William Morrow, is Liar's Circus. A Strange and Terrifying Journey into the Upside-Down World of Trump's MAGA Rallies. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, so fun. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of today's show. A big thanks uh, to, uh, to uh, our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to my executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of their amazing work throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And, and don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter. Also, our, our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And you can reach me directly at my email address, LeonardLopate at WBAI.org, if, if you want to comment on a show or would just like to say hello. We hope you'll join us again on Monday when Newsweek columnist and editor Ellis Coase makes a return visit to our show to discuss his latest book, The Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. With that, I wish you a great weekend. <laughs>